Poland's government has been taken over by the right-wing extreme Law and Justice Party and its head honcho-in-chief, Jarosław Kaczynski. Poland's government has undergone a number of reforms to fix the country and dispel a Cold War legacy that simply will not go away. They're trying to take over the judiciary, attacking the constitution and undermining the rule of law, trying to centralize all of Poland's governmental power for itself. Efforts are being made to make the judiciary more efficient and more accountable to the government's will, and a number of social changes are being enacted to help Poland, Polish society at home. And the leaders of the EU are taking a stand and calling out Poland's government for its unconstitutional attack on the independent judiciary. In response, the European Union has come forward and declared that Poland's democracy is under threat. Various ministers have made impassioned calls that Poland is oppressing its people, particularly its women, and that a constitutional crisis is imminent. The European Union has handed Poland a list of changes that it is to make if it wishes to keep its voice within the European Union. Many of these demands are non-negotiable. Welcome to the Global Inquirer. I'm your host, Nico Marsage, and today we're going to look at Poland's constitutional crisis. I'm sitting down with Derek Wong and Nicholas Mortensen, two researchers at the Global Enquirer. Derek is an economic and statistics major, and Nick is a prospective global security and justice major. What you heard at the outset of our podcast is, in essence, the East-West divide defining this constitutional crisis in Poland. Now, Derek told us the perspective from the West, whereas Nick told us the perspective from the East. And to understand a little bit more about Poland's constitutional crisis, its history, and what led to these debates, we're going to sit down with Professor Kunakowicz, who is a professor of uh, history here at UVA and focuses on Polish and German history. Uh, Professor, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. So we're here to discuss Poland's constitutional crisis. Can you walk us through some of the background to this constitutional crisis starting in 2015? Yeah, so let me start with what began in 2015, and then I might go back a little bit to give some history as a history professor. For sure, sure. It never ends. Uh, So what happened in 2015 is that Poland held elections in the fall, and a new party came to power, a party called Law and Justice, um, which is abbreviated in Polish as PiS, P-I-S. And right before PiS came to power, and it was forecast to win quite clearly, the previous party in power, the Civic Platform, appointed five judges for Poland's Constitutional Tribunal. And the Constitutional Tribunal is the body that determines whether laws passed by the government are in accordance with the Polish constitution. So it's a pretty important responsibility. And there were three terms that were set to expire right as the civic platform was leaving, but two other justices that it replaced had terms whose um, that, that would be up in a few months' time. And it appointed those positions in advance, so to speak. And when the new party, uh, Law and Justice, came into power, it contested those appointments and appointed five justices of its own. So in effect, there were 10 judges appointed for five positions. The Constitutional Tribunal itself decided that three were inappropriate, two were appropriate, and it set off this standoff between the tribunal, the old party, and the new party. That really became a major crisis around this notion of constitutionality, because Mm -hmm. the Supreme Court, or rather the Constitutional Tribunal, plays such an essential role. That was the first step in this conflict. Fast forward to to the summer of 2017, 
when just recently the Law and Justice Party also passed a law to change the appointment of judges to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court in Poland is a different institution. Uh, it has the responsibility of setting precedent for lower courts. And again, at stake was who gets to appoint judges and in what way. Because up to that point, judges were selected in effect by other judges. And the party in power piece argued that this was fundamentally undemocratic and that the best way to ensure accountability of the Supreme Court to the people was to allow the parliament, the people's representatives, to actually select the judges that would sit on the court. And so there was another major crisis in the summer of 2017, just as July, uh, that featured hundreds of thousands of people coming out on the streets in uh, on both sides in Poland. And it led to the president, who is a member himself of the Law and Justice Party, of uh, to veto two of the proposals to prevent them from going forward so far, and also led to him coming up with his own proposals just last month in September. Uh, on September 25th, President Duda released his kind of updated proposal for how to nominate Supreme Court justices. And it changed the original policies to some extent, but it left intact the basic principle that the parliament would be able to remove certain judges uh, over the age of 65, which is about 40% of the court, and then in the future to appoint um, judges or appoint really members of the nominating body that selects judges. So it's a rather complicated system, but it would give much more control over this legal process to members of the elected parliament. So is the PIS, the political party, is there some sort of precedent for them drastically changing the court like this? Yes. So this gets back into the historical precedent. The immediate precedent is that peace was in power in the early, in the mid-2000s, 2005 to 2007. And the man who's the head of the party now, Yaroslav Kaczynski, was at the time the prime minister. And while he was in office then, he found a lot of his reform efforts being stopped by both the Constitutional Tribunal and the Supreme Court. And so many critics, especially, see what he's doing now as an attempt to even the score and also to learn from his mistakes last time. In other words, to cut down a potential source of opposition before it arises. And the broader answer to your question about peace and this notion of precedent, there is a very pervasive worldview within the party leadership and among its supporters, which says, in effect, that the Polish constitution and the Polish political system, such as it emerged after 1989 and the fall of communism, is fundamentally flawed, is flawed and corrupted. And the narrative is that when communism fell, rather than sweeping away the whole system, the government and power and the solidarity movement allowed important elements of communism to remain, and in fact struck a kind of backroom deal. So there is a very powerful narrative of betrayal, that the people who negotiated the fall of communism did not actually get rid of the system and benefited themselves at the people's expense. So I'm curious, and I read that a lot of your background touches on the role of culture and arts in post and in the pre-Soviet bloc. So obviously media plays a huge role right. in that. What has been the role of the media in driving these perceptions of what happened in the early, in the early 1990s? So Poland's media landscape, uh, in many ways like ours, is quite fragmented. 
which is to say that there is a state media, unlike in this country, that is quite powerful and that is increasingly seen by the party and by its supporters as a kind of mouthpiece for the party platform. And that's especially true on television, which is the main disseminator of news, and state television has been, so to speak, brought in line, at least so critics would allege, with the party line. And alongside that is another set of media institutions, especially newspapers, so Poland's largest daily is uh, called the Gazeta Wyborcza. It was established under the Solidarity Movement and takes a very critical line towards the ruling party. And so there is very much a space for another narrative that is often in tension with and explicitly directed against PIS. And this is a divide that runs pretty deep. There is now an official association of journalists and also a kind of unofficial journalist association of those who are critical of the state media and who maintain a list of those that they believe have been fired or forced to resign under political pressure. And the total is of this morning on their website was 228 victims mm -hmm. that they consider in the Polish media of what they see as a kind of government-led purge. So is the state media always controlled by the ruling party, or is that it just happens to be the case yeah. that the state media is controlled by the PIS in this situation? Or? So this is a fluid situation because the you know you use the word always, and this is a very recent history. Um, certainly, state media was tightly controlled under the communist era, mm. so there had to be major reform after 1989. But there's not a lot of precedent to go on, and. The history of Polish politics up until this moment has been a kind of rough alternation between center-left and center-right parties. There's been a, a fairly standard process of, of switching power every few years. And something that is new in the 2015 election is that PIS has an outright majority in parliament, um, which has never happened since 1989. So there is a stronger presence of one party in power, and PIS itself certainly sees state media as something that should serve the state line. Mm -hmm. And there is debate about exactly how state-backed or state-friendly a state media should be, but the way it's being interpreted in this regime, I would say, definitely errs on the side of being a mouthpiece for the party. And outside of internal Polish media, the general perspective that I get when reading, you know, like The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, uh, you get the idea that this PIS party is very right wing in mm -hmm. Poland. It, mm -hmm. are, are they like what is your what is your take on that? Are they actually that far right or is it just a yeah. reflection of a lot of the Polish constituency's values? So it's a really good question about how to where to put this party on the political spectrum and how to understand its platform. So I think it's fair to think of it as a right-wing party. I think it describes itself as conservative um, within the European Parliament. It is part of a conservative coalition that includes the British Tory party, for instance. So it is on the right side of the spectrum. But the trouble with any descriptions of a political spectrum is that they're fluid, right? Mm -hmm. It is right of center and the center is not fixed to anything. So the specific policies of PIS are quite conservative on social issues, especially on matters of abortion. Um, one of the major controversies of this recent new regime 
has been a, a proposed total ban on abortion. The, the party was forced to withdraw uh, a couple of years ago. And it's very conservative um, on questions of anti-immigration, anti-refugee um, anti settlement, and also certainly by critics accused of very harsh uh, anti-LGBT laws, which I think has merit. On the other hand, it is also a party of a strong welfare state, a party that appeals to a substantial proportion of the Polish population that feels left out by the changes since 1989 and in part by the kind of economic differentiation that's happened since then. And so it's combining, I think, a strongly nationalist and socially conservative measure, uh, message with a protectionist, interventionist, and welfareist approach to economic policy. Sure. Right, and like a lot of the other people who are rejecting this uh, constitutional crisis are EU members. That's right. So how will this, how will the relationship between Poland and the EU change over time, in your opinion, if the PIS continues to kind of take a stronghold on the constitutional tribunal? So the EU has responded, I wouldn't say forcefully, but actively to each step of this crisis, uh, starting in 2015, escalating this summer, there are there have been a number of explicit critiques from the EU, uh, including almost all the leading EU commissions. So the European Council, the European Commission have all come out with statements and often with forceful demands for change. And most significantly, I would say, there is an investigation of whether the Polish government is violating the rule of law. This is a procedure that the EU introduced in 2014, and Poland is the first country uh, to be subjected to it. This is the first time that such an investigation has been launched. And more broadly, there is also a threat on the part of EU officials of invoking the so-called Article 7 uh, of the Maastricht Treaty, which is sometimes called the nuclear option, that would strip a country of its voting rights within the European Union. That's, that's, a, that's a big deal. The hard, the biggest yeah. sanction that um, the EU can take. And for that reason, it has to be unanimous. And this is where any talk of Article 7 will remain just that, because Hungary has already said that it will not support any kind of measures against Poland. Hungary has done some very similar reforms to its own judiciary. And so there's no realistic scenario of obtaining 27 votes to pass this. But the fact that it is discussed suggests that the EU is concerned by this and takes it seriously. I would say from Poland's perspective, this is seen as foreign intervention. Um, Kaczynski has compared it to Soviet occupation of Poland. So this is framed in terms of national sovereignty. And it feeds a narrative in Poland, which represents PIS's position on the matter, that Poland is not Eurosceptic, it is pro-EU, but it is anti-Brussels, which is to say it wants to remain in the EU, it derives immense benefits from membership, but it wants more say in how the EU is administered, and it also believes that it should have more autonomy to make internal decisions, and it views matters like these judicial reforms as internal decisions. And so beyond Poland, broadly speaking, the, the East-West divide will have further implication and has had 
implications in the past. So we saw the way that two different sides formed in the Ukraine crisis and the way they portrayed the debate. So I want to talk about the broader implications of this. Nick or Derek, can you talk to me about like what do you think that the bigger effects of this eastern-western divide is within the media? Well, the first important thing to outline is that this is... We're talking about east-west divide, we're talking about Eastern Europe, and in this case, particularly Russia. The take that I originally outlined earlier in the podcast wasn't a view held by any Russian uh, newspaper that I found. Any English-language Russian paper I found actually reported the issue fairly even-handedly, sort of looking at both the European Union's response and the internal response and kind of giving both takes equally. Where you're seeing the stronger divide is in two particular Russian outlets. One, RT, which is Russia Today, and Sputnik News. And these two are Russian news outlets that are actually intended for non-Russian audiences. They broadcast and write in a variety of languages, and funnily enough, are actually sponsored or controlled by people who are very, very close to the Russian government. So what's RT and Sputnik's incentive then in in driving the debate between, or, or the perception of at least a huge divide between the East and the West? I think... You know, when we look at the way that Eastern Europe, Eastern European media, and especially if you look at Russian media, the way that they construct their narratives is often very different from the way that the West constructs its narratives. And I think it's definitely a question of the ideological line that these narr- that these narratives are trying to push or that these media outlets are trying to push. The interpretations of these events, um, like if we take you know, Poland specifically, you know, the interpretation of, are we going to frame this as a question of internal politics and EU meddling, or are we going to frame this in a, frame this as a question of democracy, rule of law, um, constitutional rights, you know, that, that sort of cuts to the ideological divide in many ways in what Western media outlets focus on and what they value as important versus what Eastern outlets or Russian outlets might like to focus on instead. And the important thing to note here is that Russia, in an assessment of press freedom across nations, Russia actually ranks incredibly low, I think in the 150s, uh, and it is very, very low. And these two outlets we're talking about, RT and Sputnik, are either sponsored by or hold very, very close relationships with the Russian government. Essentially, what you see more often than not is that these outlets report various issues or call attention to different sort of stories or situations in a way that very often plays to the interests or the agenda of the Russian government. But I would say, too, that they're also calling attention to a general divide that we're seeing in Eastern Europe. I was talking to one of my professors who outlined the difference between someone's and anyone's. And anyone's are those people that live in cities, are more progressive, and can really adapt towards change. Whereas someone's are people who live maybe outside, in the periphery. Uh, They're very traditional, more conservative in their values, and, and don't conform to these progressive ideas as much. And in a sense, you know, isn't Sputnik and RT just perpetrating these already held uh, beliefs within the the someones, as you could call them? So if you take Poland specifically as an example of what you're talking about, this divide between maybe metropolitan mm-hmm. people who are more progressive, have a more global perspective, have a more, uh, more socially liberal uh, politics versus um, people who have 
um, more conservative politics who are not necessarily as metropolitan. I think that plays out really well in this particular crisis. And in fact, in a lot of the recent pol political history of Poland, you see Poland as a country that is has a lot of you know, very socially conservative people, a very Catholic country, um, and with that's just elected a very socially conservative government. And yet you also have these massive protests in the cities against a lot of the socially conservative policies. For instance, the restrictions on abortion that were proposed a few, like just a few years back inspired these massive protests in the cities. But at the end of the day, it was, you know, the popularly elected social, socially conservative government that had proposed these policies in the first place. So you really do see this divide. And I think that is, that is in a lot of ways exacerbated by, by the media, conflicting media narratives, and especially narratives that cater to um, different demographics within the population. A lot of the times, um, depending on the media outlet you're looking at, their goal might be to inflame these divisions, rather, you know, try to push an ideological line or a certain kind of perspective that will uh, further increase the the extent to which these people hold these beliefs. So something I want to be very careful about going forward is I, I want to avoid sounding alarmist, uh, just because w when you discuss Russian uh, news media, and even the, these days news in general, it's very, very easy to sort of fall into crazy conspiracy theories or simply use like terms like fake news or other things as a cudgel. That doesn't really get you anywhere. That said, what Derek's saying is entirely right. They've sold themselves as an alternative to the anybody view. They have found themselves a niche, and they're now trying to appeal that audience as much as they can. The issue is that in appealing to these somebodies, they're selling an entirely different version of reality. To RT and Sputnik, the Poland, Poland's constitutional crisis is not, a is not a domestic issue. It is an issue of the European Union bullying Poland into changing its domestic affairs for its international status. It is, its focus is so incredibly different that Derek and I might have been talking about entirely different subjects. And in a variety of areas across Eastern Europe and the world, this trend is actually repeated a lot. So I'm curious, you brought up the role of EU in this constitutional crisis. To what extent does the Eastern-Western divide in media hurt the relationship, relationship between, let's say, Russia and the West, the West including Western Europe and the United States? I think it definitely it definitely increases the tension if you have these ideological narratives of conflict that come into direct conflict with each other these different different views and interpretations of reality this creates this really big divide in understanding like what is the actual situation in Europe, what is the actual, you know, situation of our of our foreign relations? Uh, if Poland is a key NATO partner, Poland is a very very important partner of the United States in terms of like military relationships, foreign policy relationships, and a really strategic NATO partner. At the same time, the current government in power is mildly Euroskeptic. They have you know somewhat tense relationships with the rest of the European Union. They definitely have very tense relationships with Germany and Angela Merkel. They're not huge fans of the European project, but they're also not huge fans of the Russians either. So you have this difficult situation where Poland is sort of caught between all these different power, these different um, power sources of power, these different sort of power players in the European theater. And so the way the media narratives play into this is that those media narratives 
are each offering a different vision of what Europe could or should be. They each offer an alternative view of what Europe is or could be. And so the question for, I guess, the people of Poland or just average regular voters or citizens is sort of what, what vision do you believe? What do you think is the reality? What media narrative do you buy into? And then how does that affect your decision making? It's, to me, these different versions of reality are indem- are symptoms of a much larger issue we have at hand, and that is of, as we all know, a certain degree of geopolitical rivalry between the West and Russia. And more often than not, the version of reality that our team, Sputnik, are selling are a, a version of reality that's compatible with Russian interests. Uh, it's a narrative of Euroscepticism, a, um, a reality that's composed of opposition to NATO growth is a version of reality that very much sort of despises the idea that despises so-called Russophobia. As a matter of fact, on Sputnik's front page, there is an entire column titled Russia Did It, which is just articles upon articles dispelling some of the rumors that Russia had either interfered in elections, had committed foul play here, did foul play here somewhere else. And while the factual merit of these articles is kind of questionable, it sort of reinforces the idea that these outlets are very much on Russia's side of the corner, that they are defending Russia's interests, and more often than not, they're defending the very reality uh, version of reality that Russia wants and that Russia sort of lives under. I think you brought up a really good point there that um, a lot of... Uh, the lot of the narrative on the Russian side is that they feel victimized by the blaming of Russia for some of the foreign policy crises. So they feel victimized by us blaming them for meddling in the 2016 election. They feel unfairly accused by, say, France for the leaks in their presidential election. They, they really, the media narrative is denying that these things were the fault of the Russian government. And so to conclude, I want to present one last question, and it's about moving forward with the East and West media divide and the relationships between Russia and the U.S. You know, will, given the current state of the media and this current divide, is there any room for cooperation? Is there any hope? Is basically what I'm asking, that the media won't continue to perpetuate these divides, not only internally, like we saw within Poland, but also geopolitically between U.S. and Russia, Western Europe and Russia? There might have been a hope for it, but with the entire matter of Russia interfering in the American election and you know various other investigations involving Russia, it's one of those instances where you really can't unring the bell. There is some evidence or there is a prevailing narrative in many political spheres in the United States that Russia embarked upon a deliberate campaign of misinformation and collusion and perhaps interference in the American election to fight for its own interests. And that violates so many basic diplomatic and political rules and agreements that if these allegations turn out to be true to the extent that many people assert that they are, there's simply no for cooperation. Uh, the well at that point would be so thoroughly poisoned that I can't see for this generation, even beyond that, of there being any hope for cooperation. I think a lot of it has to do with Putin's position at the top of the Russian government and the fact that he is there by virtue of his the support of an inner circle of the top levels of Russian all like Russian elite el- economic elites, uh, Russian oligarchs, and the top political spheres, as well as you know the the general population rally, sort of rallying behind Putin. I mean, I maybe I could see some hope for for reconciliation 
if like an opposition party won power but that's extraordinarily unlikely and even then that would be no guarantee of an actual reconciliation it would just present it might present an opportunity for a reset in relations because i think putin and his brand in the united states is so thoroughly toxic to you know, people on either side of the spectrum, for the most part, um, and it's, it's difficult to establish that kind of a kind of rapport where the, both sides can trust each other, especially after the 2016 election, the allegations therein, and even then, I think even this, even going back to Ukraine and Crimea, I think that's where it really started, where the deterioration like really ramped up again is with the Russian occupation of Crimea and the sort of the issues with Ukraine. And that's just spiraled downwards ever since with Syria and now with the 2016 election. And to try and reverse that trend would be very difficult. I would have to agree. I think that the congressional result of the sanctions where only three senators voted against reflects the uh, consensus within American politics about how we should treat uh, um, American foreign policy towards Russia. And to, not to sum everything up, but what are your what are your major takeaways from the coal crisis and their relationship, Poland's relationship internally and their relationship with the EU? Right. Well, it's a really interesting story, and it's very much ongoing. Um, you know, it's a telling is telling that this is happening in Poland. I think part of the reason this received so much coverage in the West is because it's happening in Poland. Poland was the pioneer of anti-communist movements in the 1980s. It was for years a kind of shining beacon of East European success and economically it has met, managed to weather the 2008 crisis and other economic crises better than just about any country in Europe. So this crisis, in terms of Western perception, certainly threatens this narrative of success and a narrative that portrayed Poland as a natural friend and ally for the European Union in Eastern Europe. That damage will probably be lasting. Um, the kind of response that the EU has made already to the Polish crisis has threatened to raise more Eurosceptic attitudes across Poland. It certainly has established a fundamental antagonism between PIS and the European Union that uh, is likely to endure. But more broadly, uh, I think one of the takeaways is what we touched on earlier, that to my mind, this is a story about a rising populist tide. And I hesitate to use the word authoritarianism, but certainly attempts by ruling parties to express what they see as their mandate by overriding institutions. And that really is what I think is kind of most interesting about this and what also connects this Polish story to the United States, that this is in some ways a struggle over the meaning of democracy and what and how, uh, what, what democracy means and how one defines it. So that the line that PIS has taken is that democracy requires accountability to elected officials, that the best way to carry out the people's will is to make sure that elected officials like the president and parliament have the power to appoint judges and regulate the constitution. That flies in the face of 
Another vision of democracy, the one that is currently enshrined in the Polish constitution, that holds that democracy only works as long as there are safeguards to protect individuals' ability to express their opinion and to work within a rule of law. And those visions are, I think, irreconcilable. I think they speak more broadly to the question of what it means to be a democratic state and what it means to respect the voice of the people. And that debate is one that we are seeing play out across the European Union. Uh, it's one that I think affects perceptions of the EU as such, as a largely non-elected body. And it's one that's very relevant to what's happening in the US, certainly when it comes to our Supreme Court appointments, but also when it comes to legal protections, regulation, institutional safeguards that certain politicians will perceive as impeding the real voice and will of the people. So I think ultimately this is indicative of a kind of ideological contestation. You know, what does it mean to be a democratic state? Democracy, after the fall of communism, had this moment of triumph. Uh, everyone, certainly many states, I shouldn't say everyone, but across the European Union, states embrace the principle of democracy, but what they mean by it can be quite different. And that's something that this crisis illustrates. Well, thank you very much, Professor. Thank you again. This is terrific. And that'll do it for today's episode. I want to thank Derek and Nick for coming on. Um, I hope you enjoyed listening to the uh, interesting take about Poland's constitutional crisis and, broadly speaking, how this Eastern and Western divide of media has real implications in, in Eastern Europe, Western Europe, the U.S., and Russia. Hope you tune in next week as Kati and I take a look at educational development in South Africa and how the roots of colonization can still be present in, in 2017. While you're at it, you can go ahead and like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and check out our new website to listen to some previous episodes. We'll see you next time.